Uh, please turn again in your Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Romans as we continue to work our way very slowly on many, most Sunday evenings through this great epistle. Now we ended actually with uh, verse 7 when we were together last in Romans, uh, but I want to pick up verse 7 again and the first part of verse 8 tonight. Let's pray before reading. Our Father and our God, with reverence we open your word. It is your word inspired in the whole and in the part. We receive its full authority. It is without error. It comes from your sovereign and fatherly hand to us, your people. And we pray that on this evening your people will grow in grace and be conformed to the image of your Son, having heard the exposition of sacred scripture. And that those among us who may not know you at all, that they may be drawn to the Savior who died for sinners and rose from the dead. Please hear our prayer. And we pray at Covenant Presbyterian Church for holiness of life for our members. And that you may be pleased to use us, that more may be won to Jesus Christ through the ministry of this church than ever before. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans, let's begin reading in the first chapter, verse 1, through the first portion. uh, Well, let's read through verse 8. This is the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, we have seen already in our exposition of Romans some really thrilling truths, have we not? We have seen early on in this epistle the exposition of the gospel of God. And so the entire gospel that is going to be expounded throughout this book is really in the opening verses expounded to us, especially in verses 3 and 4. There we find the gospel of God, the gospel that concerns God's own Son. And Paul stresses the incarnation of our Lord. Why? Because only if our nature is assumed can our nature be saved. And then he stresses the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, first of all, because for Paul personally, it was the resurrected Christ that changed his life in meeting him on the Damascus Road. And then he makes plain that all that relates to Christ's sonship, his victory over sin, is confirmed by Christ's resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the basis for proclaiming Christ's lordship to the nations, to the Gentiles. The doctrine of the Trinity is found in these opening verses. And we also saw that all Christians are saints, called of Jesus Christ, effectually beloved of God, called saints. So we spent an entire sermon looking at what the effectual call is all about, and we spent time looking at what it meant that we are saints. 
Now, Paul uses the standard epistolary form in his epistles, but he always transforms them. Why does he do this? Because the gospel transforms everything. And since he has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that the apostle does is now looked at through this grid of the gospel that has changed his life and saved him from his sin. The gospel then transforms all things. And the gospel also establishes not only and foremost a relationship with God, but also in addition to that establishes our relationship one with another. He has called us together in a church. He has called us into the communion of the saints. And so the Apostle Paul addresses fellow believers, seeing them now through the eyes of one who has been saved from his own sin and brought into the body of Christ through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the communion of the saints means that we look on people differently than once we did. We look upon people differently, and especially the people of God, differently than once we did. Consider that Paul once looked upon the people of God as those who deserved persecution. You will recall that after the stoning of Stephen, we read at the end of the seventh chapter of the book of Acts that it was Saul of Tarsus that held the coats of those who stoned him. And then we read on in chapter 8, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Christians then initially were slow to receive Paul as an apostle, slow to actually believe that he was truly converted, slow to believe that he had really met the risen Christ and that he was saved from his sin. And he tells us in the first chapter of Galatians, verses 23 and 24, But they heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. So all is new for Paul. All is transformed. He has met the risen Lord. He sees Christ differently, and he sees God's people differently And that is why his epistolary addresses, the opening of his letters, read so wonderfully, so beautifully, and so differently. So we've spent many, many Sundays looking at this opening of the epistle to the Romans, and we've seen a great deal of depth in his theology already. But now, let's simply ask the question, what does Paul want for them? As he writes to these believers, and remember, he's not been to the church of Rome yet, He wants to go there. He desires that that will be the base from which he can take the gospel to Spain. But he's not met them. He knows a few people there, associates and relations, but he's not been to the church. He's not met this church, but he loves this church. He loves God's people. He loves those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ and who have been saved through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So what does he want for them? Well, we touched upon it last time, but I simply want us to dwell upon words that we typically skip over in our reading. We don't spend much time there. It's found here in verse 7, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, that's what he wants for these people. Now tell me, is it not true that when you read your Bibles, typically you read something like this and you don't spend much time there? You read, you say grace and peace, and you read on. What a wonderful thing it would be, actually, if you would slow down from time to time in your Bible reading, and you would take a word such as grace, and you would dwell upon what it means here in this verse and in this epistle, and you would take the word peace, 
and you would dwell upon what it means here in this epistle and apply it to your own heart and to your own life. Well, that's what we're going to attempt to do briefly tonight. First of all, he wants for the people of God, saved by the grace of God, that they continue to understand that grace. He wants grace for them. Again, a transformed greeting. In Greek, we would read kare, when you would meet someone and you would express your appreciation of someone, you would greet a friend, you would say kare, you would say joy. But now kare becomes charis, grace. That's how he transforms the epistolary formula. Now let's think then about this grace. What does it mean? We talk about grace, but what does it mean? Well, first of all, let's remember that grace is huge in Paul's thinking. As a matter of fact, this was a very unscientific reading, but I found 21 references to the word grace in the book of Romans. 21. Now, I would say that in a short book of 16 chapters, 21 explicit references to the word grace says something about Paul's emphasis upon grace, wouldn't you? He uses this word in Romans, but he uses it all through his epistles. Take, for example, the beautiful way in which you will find in the chapter that we look at, the section we look at next in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, he uses it. In 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 15, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now that's the passage we look at next Sunday morning, but you heard the explicit reference to the grace that transformed his life. So that's the first thing we need to say about grace. Of course he wants grace for these people because grace is huge in his thinking. He's a grace preacher. He understands that salvation is altogether by grace, and so he wants that for them as well. But secondly, all of redemption is by grace. Our salvation finds its origin in the gracious heart of a loving Heavenly Father. Keeping your finger here, go to the first chapter of Ephesians, and just remember what Paul the Apostle has to say about the grace of God in this chapter. Looking only at the first six verses. Uh, beginning with verse 3, actually, of Ephesians 1. Now remember, verses 3 through 14 in the Greek New Testament is one lengthy sentence. So we're only looking at a few of the, the, the verses. In Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. What a wonderful passage to show us that grace stems from the heart of our Heavenly Father who has loved His people from eternity and has chosen us to salvation and that all of this is to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in Christ, who is the Beloved. Or you might turn to 2 Timothy. And as a matter of fact, I think you should. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 
and we read in verses 8 and 9 another reference to this grace. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so when we read the Apostle Paul, we find that he constantly emphasizes this downward movement of grace, this wonderful rolling down, condescending grace that comes all the way from his eternal counsel of election. So election, calling, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification that takes us all the way to our heavenly home is altogether by grace. When Paul uses this word grace, then, it's really a packed word. He has much there that he intends for you to think about and dwell upon. And then, of course, thirdly, God is the sole author of grace, but we ill-deserving sinners are the recipients of grace. For example, in regeneration... When we are regenerated, we are completely passive. The Holy Spirit moves in our lives. We, being dead in trespasses and sins, are made alive through the work of the Spirit of God, and we are granted saving faith that we may respond to the gospel of God's sovereign grace. We are completely passive in regeneration. But in God's continued work in our lives as He sanctifies us, it is grace that makes us very active. So that we read in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, "...work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you to will and to do of His good pleasure." But whether it is in the passivity, when we are completely dead in trespasses and sins and the resurrection power of God makes us alive in Christ, or whether it is in the continuing work of God in sanctifying the soul, in either case, it is all of grace from first to last. My friend, remember that. Your salvation from first to last is all of grace. You contribute no righteousness. You contribute no work of your own, no merit of your own but it is altogether by the grace of God. But then fourthly, as we think about his desire that they understand grace, grace is such a living principle that grace always manifests itself. Always. Uh, If there is one whose heart has been touched savingly by the grace of God, it will manifest itself, it will show itself. That's what we mean, of course, by the Lordship of Christ And sometimes there's a controversy over lordship salvation. Well, there should be no controversy because where the grace of God is really evident in a person's life, where it's really happened, then it's going to show in the way in which that person lives, including the struggle that we have with temptation and sin every day in this battle that is the Christian life until God the Father calls us home. So grace is such a living principle that it manifests itself. Well, just notice verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Well, that's what he's saying. 
The grace of God has come into their lives, and now it shows in faith that is being made known throughout the then known civilized world. So grace makes us alive. Grace transforms. You remember the second chapter of the book of Ephesians that says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were conformed to this age, that we were enslaved to Satan, that we were enslaved to our sin, that we were under God's wrath. But then he tells us, by grace have you been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There has been a transition, a real transition from wrath to grace, so that the source is God's own will and love, the origin is in eternity past, the movement is toward chosen sinners through the cross and the effectual calling of the Spirit of God, the channel to receive it is faith, grace, the free favor of God to us ill-deserving, hell-deserving sinners, no works righteousness of any kind. No wonder Doddridge wrote, grace is a charming sound harmonious to the ear. So we continue. Having known that grace of God that brings us life, we continue as people of God to find grace in Christ to help us in our time of need, don't we? Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what he wants for the people of God. He wishes for them grace, that they will have grace, know grace, understand the God of grace, understand salvation by grace, continue to live by grace, continue to find that help in their time of need through the grace of God. Only grace can make us Christians Only grace can sustain us as Christians. Only grace can take us home. But now, there's a second word. He wants for them, in verse 7, he wants for them grace, but he also wants for them, and of course for us, peace. He wants for us peace. The Hebrew, of course, shalom. And when you come to a text like this, in the Greek New Testament, erene. Shalom means well-being. It means tranquility. It actually is a very comprehensive term that means salvation. And the Apostle Paul is reflecting that in the use of erene, peace. Paul first has in mind, always, peace obtained for us, the objective peace that has been wrought in the cross. Now, you will remember, for example, in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, in the first verse, that he speaks of justification and says, having now been justified by grace, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's an interesting textual question there, because there's the word we have is the word ekumen. You hear the short O sound, ekumen, it's an omicron. 
Some few manuscripts have an omega rather than a long O rather than a short O, ekomen. And if you have the long O, the long, the omega, then you would translate the verse because it's a, a subjunctive rather than an indicative. You would translate it. <clears throat> um, we let us have peace with God. Now, I have no doubt whatsoever that what the Apostle Paul has in mind is what the vast majority of manuscripts show in the fifth chapter of the first verse, that short O, we have peace with God. But the point is this, uh, those who put the long O and understood it to mean let us have peace with God weren't far off the mark because he goes on in that fifth chapter and speaks of that subjective peace. The point is this, the subjective personal peace that we know as Christians is always, always founded on the objective peace wrought for us in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, Take, for example, another passage. Turn to Ephesians, the second chapter, and notice how the Apostle Paul speaks of peace. He says in Ephesians 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." You see, the emphasis there is on the objective peace that has been wrought in the cross of Christ through the shed blood. But it also speaks of that peace that belongs to brother and brother. For he has made Jew and Gentile, the two, one, so that we now share together in that peace. Objective peace that brings subjective relational peace. Or if we were to look at 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and the constant emphasis on reconciliation, what he means by reconciliation is that Christ has wrought that objective peace for us. So here's the point. I have no doubt in Romans that when, in verse 7, he wishes peace for these people, for these Christians, that he's thinking of a subjective peace. But I think also that always, Paul has in mind, it's always a part of the equation, the objective accomplishment of peace for us by Christ on the cross. So, men strive for peace. Men long for inner peace. And they try all sorts of ways to find that peace. But it's impossible. For a man outside of Christ can know no peace. And that is why the order is so important. Grace, then peace. 
Because if you have not known and experienced the grace of God in the saving of your soul, you cannot experience the peace of which the Apostle speaks in this passage. All of us know how Augustine begins in that opening paragraph of his Confessions. For thou hast created us for thyself, and our heart cannot be quieted till it may find repose in thee. Every sinner has a disquieted heart because of guilt and his need of justification and a relationship with God, and peace can only be known through the purchased peace on the cross of Christ. That's why in the third chapter of Romans, he will emphasize that the Apostle Paul is the propitiation for our sins, that he is the one who has satisfied the wrath of God that was justly against us, that in his own body on the tree he bore and within his soul our hell for us, satisfying the wrath of God so that there might be objective peace between God and man. And then when a man's heart takes Christ by faith, he can find peace within. Why? Because the enmity between ourselves and our Creator has been removed. The fall has been dealt with. Our guilt has been pardoned. We are now just in the presence of God. Enmity, that's the great reason why man has no peace. That's why your neighbor has no peace. That's why before coming to Christ, you had no peace, because there was hatred for God and enmity between God and man. So let's pause here to ask this question. Do you have peace with God? No more important question than that can be asked, after all. It's a simple question. Answer it. Yes or no? Do you have peace with God? Do you have faith in Christ so that you know that there is this objective peace that has been purchased for you by Jesus Christ, our propitiatory sacrifice? Are you at peace with God? Do you know Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? But Christian, let me ask you another question. Do you understand that this is also the basis for that everyday subjective peace that you may have in your heart. That peace of God which passes all understanding that Paul speaks of. Do you remember Philippians 4, 7? And the peace of God which passeth all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That peace of God will be a sentinel guarding your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Is this your experience, believer? Is it? We worry and we fret. Is it your experience? You know, you know you should stop and consider that your right to peace, your right to inner tranquility, your right to peace in whatever circumstance you face, your right to peace in your heart in any situation is simply the purchased fruit of the objective peace that Christ won on the cross. So here I am, and I'm a Christian living in a world that seems to be falling apart, in a country in which immorality is rife, in a church that is filled with apostasy, and I also do battle within with temptation and sin, and I often wonder, where is that peace? At such a time, it's important for you simply to to pause and think, 
Do you realize you have a right to peace in any circumstance? That you have a right to peace in any situation, no matter what it may be? Because that objective peace has been purchased through the blood of the Lamb, you have a right to personal inner peace in your heart, in the life that you live, and in circumstances which are hard. And you know, you will have a right to that peace, Christian, when finally the time comes that you lie upon your deathbed and you are about to go out into eternity. You have a right to that inner peace because Christ has made peace objectively through the cross. So maybe you need to stop and think about these words, grace and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. H.C.J. Mole put it this way, two ideas, favor and gratuity. The grace of God in His favoring will and work for us and in us, gratuitous utterly and to the end, unearned. Grace is God for us. Grace is God in us, sovereign, willing, kind. Peace, the holy repose within, and so around, which comes of the man's acceptance with God and abode in God, and all is well in the heart. And in the believer's contact with circumstances, as he rests in his Father and his Redeemer, peace, perfect peace, under the sense of demerit, and amidst the crush of duties, and on the crossing currents of human joy and sorrow, and in the mystery of death, because of the God of peace, who has made peace for us through the cross and His Son, and is peace in us by the Spirit, which He hath given us. Christ has made peace, and you have a right to enter peace. Not because you or I deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because Christ has purchased it. Our Father, we ask in the name of Christ our Lord that you will take this brief exposition of your word to our hearts and lives so that we may know that this gratuity, this favor that has come to us, this grace, this grace is God for us, not against us, God sovereign, willing, and kind, and that we, your people, may know and understand that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding in the midst of trouble, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of grief, as well as in the midst of those things that are more joyous, comes to us from your sovereign hand because Christ has made peace for us as our propitiation to be received by faith alone. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.